Chapter fourteen Mistress Diana is Unmaidenly Part one of Black Moth by George Ed Heyer Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. The idyllic summer days passed quickly by, and every time that my lord spoke of leaving, the outcry was so indignant and so firm that he hastily subsided and told himself he would stay just another few days. His shoulder, having mended up to a certain point, refused quite to heal, and exertion brought the pain back very swiftly. So his time was, for the most part, spent with Mistress Di out of doors, helping her with her gardening and her chickens, for Diana was an enthusiastic poultry-farmer on a small scale, and ministering to her various pets. If Fido had a splinter in his paw, it was to Mr. Carr that he was taken. If Nelly the spaniel caught a live rabbit, Mr. Carr would assuredly know what to do for it, and the same with all the other animals. The young pair grew closer and closer together, while Miss Betty and O'Hara watched from afar, the former filled with pride of her darling and satisfaction, and the latter with apprehension. O'Hara knew that his friend was falling unconsciously in love, and he feared the time when John should realize it. He confided these fears to his wife, who, with young David, was staying at her mother's house in Kensington, in a long and very Irish letter. She replied that he must try and coax my lord into coming to stay with them, when her charms would at once eclipse Mistress Diana's, though to be sure she could not understand why Miles should not wish him to fall in love, for as he well knew, t'was a prodigious pleasant sensation. If he did not know it, then he was indeed most disagreeable. And had he ever heard of anything so wonderful? David had drawn a picture of a horse. Yes, really, it was a horse. Was he not a clever child? Further, would her dearest Miles please come and fetch her home, for, although Mamma was prodigious amiable and wanted her to stay several weeks, she positively could not live without her husband an instant longer than was necessary. As soon as O'Hara read the last part of the letter, he brushed Carstairs and his love affairs to one side, and posted straight to London to obey the welcome summons. Bit by bit my lord discovered that he was very much in love with Diana. At first his heart gave a great bound, and then seemed to stop with a sickening thud. He remembered that he could not ask her to marry him, disgraced as he was, and he immediately faced the situation, realizing that he must go away at once. His first move was to Mr. Bowley to tell him of his decision. On being asked why he must so suddenly leave Horton House, he explained that he loved Diana and could not in honour speak of love to her. At which Mr. Bowley gasped and demanded to know the reason. Carstairs told him that he was by profession a highwayman, and watched him bridle angrily. Before so agreeable and so smiling, Mr. Bowley now became frigidly polite. He quite understood Mr. Carr's position, and, uh, yes, he honoured him for the course on which he had decided. Mr. Bowley was very, very cold. Carstairs gave Jim orders to pack immediately, that he might depart next day, and reluctantly informed Miss Betty of his going. She was startled and bewildered. She had imagined that he would spend all June with them. Circumstances he regretted willed otherwise. He should always remember her great kindness to him, and hoped that she would forgive the brusque nature of his departure. When he told Diana, her eyes opened very wide, and she laughed, pointing an accusing finger at him. "'You are teasing, Mr. Carr,' she cried, and ran into the house. That evening Miss Betty confirmed Jack's words, and seeing the hurt look in the girl's eyes, wisely held her peace. Next morning, in the Plissons, Diana came across my lord, and went up to him, gravely questioning. "'You are really leaving us to-day, Mr. Carr?' "'I am afraid I must, Mistress Di.' "'So suddenly? Then you were not teasing yesterday?' "'No, mademoiselle, I was not. I fear I have tarried too long, taking advantage of your kindness.' 
"'Oh, no, no,' she assured him. "'Indeed you have not. Must you really go?' Looking down into her big eyes, John read the answering love in them, and grew pale. It was worse to think that she cared, too. If only he thought she was indifferent, parting would not seem so unbearable. "'Mademoiselle, you overwhelm me. I must go.' "'Oh, but I am sorry. Your being here has been such a pleasure. I—' She stopped and looked away across the flowers. "'You—' prompted Jack before he could check himself. With a tiny laugh she brought her gaze back. "'I am sorry you must leave us, naturally.' She sat down beneath an arbor of roses, and patted the place beside her invitingly, with just the same unconscious friendliness that she had always shown him. My lord stayed where he was, with one hand on a tree-trunk and the other fidgeting with his quizzing-glass. Mistress Di, I think it only right that I should tell you what I have told your father, and what I told your aunt some time ago, when she refused to believe me. To some extent I am here under false pretenses. I am not what you think I am. Diana laced and unlaced her fingers, and thought that she understood. Oh, no, Mr. Carr. I am afraid, yes, mademoiselle. I am a common felon, a highwayman. He bit the words out, not looking at her. But I knew that, she said softly. You knew it? Why, yes, I remember when you told Aunt Betty. You believed me? You see, she apologized, I always wondered why you were masked. And yet you permitted me to stay? How silly of you, Mr. Carr! Of course I do not care what you are. I owe so much to you. He wheeled round at that and faced her. Madam, I can bear anything rather than gratitude. Is it only that which has made you tolerate me all this time? Her fingers gripped one another. Why, sir, why— "'Sir!' The flame died out of his eyes, and he drew himself up stiffly, speaking with a curtness that surprised her. "'I crave your pardon. I should be whipped at the cart-tail for asking such an impertinent question. Forget it, I beg.' Diana looked up at the stern face, half amazed, half affronted. "'I do not think I quite understand you, sir.' "'There is not to understand, mademoiselle,' he answered with dry lips. "'Twere merely that I was coxcomb enough to hope that you liked me a little for my own sake.' She glanced again at his averted head with a wistful little smile. "'Oh,' she murmured, "'oh, and—' "'It is very dreadful to be a highwayman,' she sighed. "'Yes, mademoiselle.'" End of chapter 14, part 1 Read by Sibella Denton For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.